everybody. Welcome to uh, this week's uh, live stream. Actually, there's going to be two live streams this week, but this is our first one. Uh, and welcome. My name is Ryan Pauly, where uh, we have conversations about Christianity and the Christian worldview, trying to think deeply about the world that we live in and where I bring on experts to, to help encourage you to think deeply about these things, to answer your questions and give you the chance to interact with them. And so today in our conversation, we're actually going to be focusing on the moral argument for God's existence, looking at atheistic, naturalistic explanations of it or objections to it, and trying to see which, what really does explain the morality that we experience around us, the objective morality or just morality around us uh, better. Is it atheism or theism? To do that is Dr. Greg Gansel. So let me bring him on here and then I'll give him an introduction. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So Dr. Gansel is a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. Uh, he runs the, or is the head of the doctorate in ministry in Engaging Mind and Culture program, one that I'm actually looking into and had a little chat with him about. Uh, he also was, you know, former lecturer at Yale, uh, as well as he has written books, uh, are uh, thinking about God, as well as our deepest desires. And so really kind of focusing on the area of philosophy and Christianity and making that accessible to uh, to people. So why don't we just kind of start off a little bit. Uh, I gave them a quick introduction on who you are. Uh, could you tell us a little bit kind of uh, how you got into this area of philosophy and kind of what your goal is in your kind of academic research and, and in your career? Wow, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, like many people who are Christians, it was trying to answer hard questions that got me interested in philosophy. And so I graduated college without ever going near a philosophy class. And but I had started reading C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer um, as part of my attempt to learn how to answer questions for people with whom I'm having conversations. I graduated and joined the staff of Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a campus ministry and worked on various campuses. And I kept going back and reading, and reading, and um, eventually I realized I was reading philosophy, and I thought I should take a class, and um, so I took an undergraduate class, Intro to Philosophy, I was 25, and I got hooked, so I kept taking classes, and I realized I wanted to dig deeper, so um, after Jeannie and I got married, we were in Rhode Island working at Brown University, I, I did a master's degree at the University of Rhode Island, in philosophy part-time, then went on to Syracuse to do my PhD, and then we spent 20 years at, at Yale with the Rivendell Institute. Along the way, I got to do some part-time teaching in the philosophy department at Yale, which was um, a great education for me. And then uh, five years ago, we came out here to California um, to begin teaching at Talbot. So that's kind of the biographical sketch. So I yeah. got interested through philosophy of religion, things like the moral argument, the cosmological arguments, the problem of evil. But along the way, you dig deeper and deeper. Um, I got very interested in the history of philosophy. Um, now, in terms of um, academic work, I'm thinking a lot about divine causation. How is it that God causally interacts with the world? How does God sustain the world? Uh, I've got a, a book I'm editing for Rutledge on that topic. Um, and I've also kind of fallen in love with Nietzsche. So I, I uh, have a big project I want to do on Nietzsche, which I won't get to for probably a year. Okay. 
And uh, I want to I do a comparison between Nietzsche's vision of life and the vision of life Jesus holds forth. And so I'm hoping that will come to fruition yeah. before yeah. Uh, my life is over. Awesome. Well, that's so awesome. good. So uh, a couple questions here, but, you know, with I think the, the topic of divine causation uh, is very interesting. Is that... Does that have anything to do with kind of the the I guess the big objection is if God knows all things, uh, how is how do we have free will? Is God causing all things to happen? Is, is is there some sort of that aspect included in in that research that you're doing? Actually, that's not the angle I'm interested okay. in. Of course, it comes up. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm much more interested in in does in what sense does God hold everything in existence from moment to moment. And um, questions like, um, I just wrote an essay for a friend who's editing a journal. What, um, what does it mean that God is an agent? How does God act for reasons? And th- this kind of thing. Okay. The, the big question of divine causation does touch upon the question of miracles. And, um, but that's not my main interest in it. Got it. Some of this, how does God's causal activity uh, work together with our causal activity, and there the free will question does come up, but it's not so much foreknowledge. Okay, and yeah, what we are as free agents. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. So when you were part of Crew, um, this might be you know a random question, but you know crazy. Sure. When you're part of Crew, were you were you part of the faculty commons? No, no not okay. at all. I was working on campus ministry. Okay. We start started the Rivendell Institute at Yale. It was to work with graduate students and faculty, and this is when Crew had a faculty ministry, but um, we were more interested in in um, kind of planting at one university and building long-term relationships there rather than kind of having a national coordinated strategy, which was more what Crew and Faculty Commons okay. had had done so we we kind of had a different angle okay yeah i asked because uh so uh, my parents live in fort collins colorado where crew had held their uh, every two-year large That's- event at colorado state university and um they were uh, their friends were in charge or had a influence or impact in the faculty commons and so my parents would host the dinner every two years with all of the crew leaders oh. Oh, that's and uh, anyways, and so what I never knew, and I forgot to mention this, is uh, William Lane Craig was was part of those meetings. And so yes. when I started getting into apologetics and reading William Lane Craig and listening to his stuff, my parents mentioned something to their friends that were part of crew. And they went, well, you know, Bill Craig has been over to your house before. And, yes, exactly. and we went, what? And we went back and looked at pictures. And sure enough, there, you know, I'm standing there. or he, I'm at a different table yeah. and he's sitting there talking to people. And so I didn't know. Maybe it would have been quite a, a crazy if, if you were also at my house. Uh, and I yeah. and I had no idea. <laughs> Don't think that that was the case, but but so many of those people are are long term friends of ours. Yeah, and so yeah, that that would have been crazy as well. I'd be like, were you at my house? No. <laughs> Anyways, awesome. Well, uh, like I said at the beginning, I want to I want to look in and kind of focus in on the moral argument for God's existence. I think it's one that uh, maybe is very powerful. It, it 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 maybe hits home with a lot of people because I think there's something deep inside of us that understand this idea of justice and wrongness uh, when we look at our world, and especially with I think the culture where we're at today of of understanding like it's racism is wrong and this is wrong and trying to understand. Uh, how are these things wrong? What makes morality right and wrong? What makes things right and wrong? And then how does that point to God's existence? And and even, I guess, uh, I guess we could take a step further back, but uh, maybe to start off of, of how would you uh, 
Um, how would you kind of formulate or explain the moral argument for God's existence? Well, well, that's a great question. Um, I think it's always best to explain an argument in one or two sentences and not get into a lot of details. And then you can go into detail. Absolutely. So, so the basic argument is that um, the existence and nature and purposes of God provides a better explanation or better resources for explanation for moral reality than any theory that does not include God. So it's more about a better explanation. Yeah. And so uh, one reason why I, I contacted you and I'd watched a video you've done is that uh, I recently had a conversation with Tom Jump on his uh, channel, and you did as well, where he says that there are many naturalistic explanations that better explain morality than a Christian or theistic one. And so that's one reason why I want to look at some of those uh, explanations. Now, uh, the question did come in for you, and I'll pull it up here, um, that uh, the, the way that you formulate it is a little bit different than William Lane Craig did a few uh, weeks ago or about a month ago or so on my show. And so uh, Adam asks, does Dr. Gansel see the best form of the moral argument as abductive reasoning to the best explanation, what you just pointed out there, such as the Baggett's formulation or deductive like Craig's formulation? Yes, um, I think, um, I'm not sure what Bill said on your show, but um, he tends to, to um, argue for the claim that God, the existence and nature and purposes of God is necessary for moral reality or moral truth or something. I, I don't argue that way at all, um, because I don't think we have to. Right. We, we can we can grant that there could be an atheistic story that has some explanatory power about moral reality, but it's just not as good. Right. It's when we talk about theory confirmation, um, we're not talking about um, deductive proofs. Right. The, the only areas that deductive proofs are really used. Um, well, this might be an exaggeration, but but they find their home best in logic and mathematics. Um, most academic disciplines are evidential, right? And so it could be that Bill is right about the necessity for um, of God for morality, but we don't have to argue for such a strong claim. Yeah, we can just argue that it's a better explanation. So so. My reason for going the way I do is is tactical. It's is it's a strategy decision um, rather than a strong philosophical. Okay, yeah. So so on my show just a few uh, weeks ago, uh, Craig did argue for the deductive form uh, that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. And I asked him why he preferred that over. Kind of the other way you hear it, which is if there are no objective moral values and duties, or if there are objective moral values and duties and God exists, uh, right. they do exist, therefore God exists. And he his explanation was that uh, the first one connects with what atheists have said. And so he, he listed many atheists who have come out and said that yeah. if there is no God, there are no objective moral values and duties. And so he says that's rhetorically powerful. It lines yeah. up with what atheists have said. And then you can yeah. show that there are objective moral values and duties, therefore yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that is powerful. I mean, you think about Sartre or J.L. Mackey, um, very famous atheistic philosophers who have admitted that, but not every atheistic philosopher admits it. Yeah. And um, and so uh, another thing that might be helpful here is you use the sentence objective moral values and duties. 
right? I might separate values and duties, okay, right? Because um, I actually think that there can be objective moral goods in non-theistic um, theories. Okay, how so? And so you think Aristotle um, argued that there's an objective human nature. And because of that, then there is objective flourishing. There are certain things that make human beings function well and certain things that make them function not so well. And, um, and these are objective because they're tied to what it means to be human. Um, and flourishing then is an objective good for human beings. Now, that doesn't mean we have an obligation to flourish or to help people flourish. But it's a, it's a way to get some kind of objective good in a theory without God. And you could say the same thing for utilitarianism. So John Stuart Mill, who was not the first utilitarian, but he's the famous one because he wrote that little pamphlet called Utilitarianism, would, would say something like this. There are objective facts about pain and pleasure. And, and it's objectively true that pain is better than, I mean, pleasure is better than pain. Um, and so there's an objective good. And you don't need God to tell you that. But that by itself doesn't give you an obligation to, to do it. So I, so I, I think um, it might be the case that um, God is required to have objective obligations. But that doesn't mean um, there can't be values that are in, in a strong sense objective in a theory without God. So I guess where I'm kind of, uh, I'm maybe not tracking super well is what would make those values objective if there is no standard by which to judge them as objective, just because we say, well, we're humans and it's, it kind of seems like the, the human flourishing example from that you hear from some atheists of, well, human flourishing is good. Right. And, and therefore we should flourish. And it's like, well, but why is flourishing good? Well, it, it, it's good for the person, right? There's, there's a way we run better, right? Um, and and there, there's a sense in which the question comes to an end with, with the recognition that um, to be a person, it's better to have relationships that are characterized by trust for the most part, rather than suspicion. Let's take that as an example. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's appropriate to ask, well, why? Right? It's because human beings function relationally better. And if that's because of human nature being objective, which, of course, Aristotle thought it was, then um, that gives you some sense of objective value. Um, there's an objective good that that doesn't need to be grounded in um, necessarily in God. Um, Wouldn't though that uh, to say that we function better, wouldn't that be applying some sort of standard of what, how humans should function, some sort of teleology for the human being that um, does, does a, a, a naturalistic theory give you that standard by which we can say better? Yeah, the standard is given by human nature. I mean, Aristotle, this is all in the Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle uses the analogy of a knife and say a knife has certain excellences, which is the word for virtue, by which it's a good knife. 
and and what makes it a good knife is its ability to perform its function, which is to cut. So therefore, a sharp blade, a solid blade, these are all going to be virtues of a knife, and they are objective insofar as there's an objective function. Now, the difference between a knife and a human being is human beings invented knives and imposed the purpose mm -hmm. on the knife. But um, human beings didn't invent human nature. I, I'm speaking as Aristotle yeah. now, uh, although he would speak in Greek, which I can't. <laughs> Why aren't you speaking in uh, Greek right now? Come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll translate. I, yeah. I took one semester. <laughs> really? I don't remember it. <laughs> I took one semester of Latin several times and still can't quite do it. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, so it, it might not be perfectly satisfactory, right? But, but think about it this way. If human nature is objective, then, and if there's a good way for human beings to run and a bad way, those two things will also be objective. Now, we haven't gotten to morality yet or obligation or duty. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just that there are states of affairs that are better than others relative to objective human nature. This is kind of the Aristotle thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so I, I posted uh, on Twitter yesterday um, uh, kind of uh, trying to get some some atheists or naturalists to come on and kind of say what their objections and, and explanations are of morality. And the outsider humanist commented, and he's actually joined here and sent in a couple other questions as well. So thanks for Good. thanks for joining Welcome. here. But uh, his uh, response on Twitter said, uh, my preferred objection is that there are no moral facts. Morality is something we decide for ourselves and together in community based on what we care most about or believe we can achieve. There is no moral truth beyond that. So how would you respond to this kind of first idea? And he's sent in another couple questions or comments that we'll get to, but how would you respond to the idea that there are no moral facts? My, my concern with that is I, and, and I don't want to be uh, facetious, I don't believe he really believes this. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I think he probably believes racism is, it's a fact that it's wrong. It's not just preference. Right. Rape is not just it's not just a societal preference that makes it wrong, because if you if you think if you think our judgments of right and wrong are, are just subjective preferences, whether individually or culturally, um, you you run up against um, people's deep concerns for things like justice. Right. Um, someone wrote an article. I don't know who it was, but it was called something like Donald Trump and the end of moral relativism. And the point of the article was, was with all the moral critique of Trump, people can't go back to being moral relativists. Right. Either either the kinds of things he is is known to stand for are wrong. Or it's just a matter of preference. Now, if it's just a matter of preference, and all moral judgments are just a matter of preference, then you've got a really um, anemic view of humanity, right? Torturing a person to death just for fun is, is, is something most people don't like. But if someone does like it, what are you going to say about it? So the objection to, to this kind of relativism um, is is... Well, I, I should I should clarify one. Someone can really hold this view. But even, most people who claim the view really don't hold it. 
Now, if someone really does hold the view, then that puts us in a really uh, awkward situation because people's preferences change, right? And, and mm-hmm. you think, do you go into business with someone who thinks there are no moral facts, so he might change his preference and decide to lie and stab you in the back? Do you let him babysit your kids? Maybe he'll decide to cook them and eat them. Um, I mean, these are, re- in a sense, ridiculous outcomes. Mm-hmm. But but there's but there's no uh, it, there's no confidence you can have in a relationship with someone who's really a relativist that goes beyond your confidence that they won't have their preferences changed. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I, I think another kind of objection has come in on my channel. Uh, as well, and I'll bring that one up here. I think it's here. Yeah. So um, uh, he says, uh, and this comes from uh, Critical Chris on, on a previous YouTube comment. And he says, you know, the very idea of an object- objective moral value and duty seems completely incoherent uh, to me, given the normal usage of those terms. Typically, objective means mind independent, therefore to be contingent in any way uh, upon minds. However, values are identified as things that are imbued by minds. Uh, he mm-hmm. goes on later to say, and I, and I use the example that you talked about of, uh, or he used the example of being uh, objectively wrong to, um, to torture a uh, little girl for fun. And I said, yeah. so you, you, you think that's just an opinion? Uh, mm-hmm. And his response here, if I can find it, I wasn't, um, here it is. He goes, uh, I don't even know what it means to say something is objectively wrong. Again, in a world devoid of agents, what does the statement, it's wrong to torture a little girl, even mean? So I guess, okay. what, how would you then explain this idea of when you say it's not just a preference that racism or rape is wrong, it is wrong. Uh, what does that mean if we are subjective agents making this statement? Yeah, I, th- I think there's an ambiguity in the term value in the in how he frames the question, which is not... Um, unusual because the word is in, intrinsically ambiguous, right? Because, because sometimes we use the word value in terms of we value something, right? Like I value rock and roll and someone else might not. Those people are not my friends, but I've heard of people that don't value rock and roll, right? So, so, so there is a subjective use of the term value, and then there's an objective use, right? And in this context, maybe it would help us to drop the word value and use a more awkward word like good. There are objective goods or something like that because because the term value in many contexts does carry this subjective notion. I really value um, this kind of art. I really value this kind of food and, and this kind, and, and that's a perfectly legitimate use. So if we, if we can disambiguate the term um, and, and then say, um, there are um, objective goods and there are subjective values, right? And when I have a subjective value, I take something to be good, but I'm not saying that this, that this is an objective fact about the world. So I, I like butter pecan ice cream. That's my favorite kind for some inexplicable reason. And that's a value, right? It's a, a taste value or something like that. Um, but I'm not tempted to think that um, that tracks a hierarchy of values in the world, right? So we do have this subjective um, sense of value. So I want to affirm that um, when we talk about objective v- 
values. We're talking about states of affairs that are objectively better than other states of affairs, than other alternative ones. And um, torturing a person to death just for fun is an objective is a state of affair that's objectively worse than helping someone flourish. Now, I might this might not go far enough to persuade our conversation partner that there are objective goods, but sometimes it helps us to to recognize that the term value carries both of these connotations. Yeah. Right. And so he said, how can there be values if there's no mind? And um I on the subjective view, he's right. Right. There's only a value if there's someone doing the valuing. But there can be objective goods. Right. And, and you know, it's worth asking the question, and I'm not sure what I think off the top of my head, whether there, there would be objective goods without minds. Hmm. Right. Um, that, that's a fair enough question. Um, but, of course, the view is that there are minds. Right. Yeah. So there are objective goods for human beings. And of course, if, if God is real, as um, as as we claim, um, then there's a mind that holds some goods to be objective. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, my response to that, you know, because he kind of seemed to be saying as well of uh, the uh, simply because we are subjects that are making that that are having the experience therefore it is subjective and i said no um just because i have an experience as a subject like i i i experienced the beach uh right. but if i said i experienced the beach yesterday that's still an objective fact of either i did or i did not and the truth is i did not go to the beach so that would be objectively false but there is a beach that's an object of experience. Yeah. And so just because I experience something uh, does not mean that it then becomes subjective. There still is an objective truth uh, in that. Um, so the outsider humanist did respond to kind of your first comments. And he says, um, there are things that I'm against. Yes. But again, that's because I care about people and their happiness and freedom. I don't need there to be a fact about them being wrong. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in, in order for him for a person to care, you don't need their, you know, you don't need to hold to objective facts, right? You might just have a subjective preference and that's, you know, and that's right. But, um, but then you have to recognize if it's all subjective preference, then someone who has a different subjective preference is, is not deficient in any way. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have a really hard time with people like, um, Martin Luther King, who held his own culture to a higher standard. And um, you have a hard time with um, people like Hitler, and um, who's, who's the favorite whipping boy, right? There are a couple of others that deserve same amount of attention, like Stalin and Mao. But um, you think, well, well they, he had his preferences, and he had the political authority to execute his preferences. And um, do, do we just simply say we don't like it? Or can we say there's something objectively wrong here? And, and that gives us grounds um, to resist in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems kind of like the um, the response of like it, it, sometimes atheists will make the uh, uh, objection saying, 
Christians say that I can't be good without God. And the Christian says, no, we're not saying you can't be good. You absolutely can be moral without believing in morality, but there's no standard or foundation for that objective moral action. And what what's going to stop? You know, I think uh, there's a video of Robbie Zacharias where a guy talks to him, you know, what are you so afraid about with subjective moral reasoning? And he goes, you know, what, what keeps someone else from just zinging one through your head and saying that's good for me? Yeah. You know. You lock your doors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you lock your doors at night? That's one thing you, you made the, the assertion of. Um, so then what comes along with this, uh, as well as um, then uh, kind of why, I guess, why why care about what God says? And how does, um, you know, God's, um, uh, how does his kind of command become normative or objective? And the outsider humanist put this as well. I've had this objection before is, you know, what what might make God's purpose or nature normative and objective or absolute sense? Uh, than what it means uh, them to be so. Yeah, and I think that I think the fundamental answer is that God is the creator of everything outside of Himself, and He has the authority. Um, and um, it's not an arbitrary authority. It's it, you know we we have a slogan uh, that's very popular: question authority. But that only applies to arbitrary or um, finite or flawed authorities. Um, you know, because God created the universe, his, um, his, in a sense, his purposes in nature are objective relative to any preference or decision that happens within the universe. They're objective in the, in the sense that they stand outside, right? They're independent of the preferences of other agents. And, and in the Christian story, God created the universe and created human beings with specific purposes in mind. And some of these purposes, not all of them, but some of them are moral. And, and he has the authority to create um, people with moral purposes. And these purposes are, are, in, are objective because they're independent of the mind of the person that is so created. Yeah. So... In a sense, he's responding here and saying, uh, so are you saying it's normative because it's normative? No, it's normative because God has the authority. Okay. And I think that it gets into something uh, very important and, and critical, Chris. I'll come back to you here in just a second. But uh, in the conversation with Tom Jump that I had, and, and you, like I said, you talked to him as well, uh, he brought up this is-ought distinction. And he says that it, he made a statement, it is logically impossible to get an ought from an is. So how is it that because God has uh, a moral authority, he is the authority uh, and murder is wrong, how do you now get this normative, objective, moral duty of you ought not murder? Well, I think that I think the claim that God is the authority is an includes a normativity to it, and this might be what what the the previous question was more about, and I might have missed some of the nuance of his question. Um, so author, authority is is the kind of property that includes um, um, both ought and is, right? Um, so if I am if I work for Walmart, my manager is an authority legitimately over certain things, um, and, and, and that brings certain kinds of obligations along with it, as well as just simply being a fact about the case. Yeah. So yeah. it's not a case of deriving an ought from an is, it's just that there are certain properties that include both ought and is. Yeah. Yeah. That's my first pass. I mean, to work that out technically um, would require probably some 
more thinking. But. Yeah, no, I think that is a, a good kind of summary of it in the sense that it, you're not simply just trying to get an op from an is, but you're right. you're including now a legitimate authority, uh, yes. you know, a, a boss, a manager, a president, you know, uh, you know, the government or whatever, the police, you know, where now there is a moral, you know, uh, command where there, there are laws and rules and things that you're supposed to now follow. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, <clears throat> Critical Chris commented uh, that we kind of misrepresented his point uh, a little bit. Uh, and he said, it wasn't my point. Uh, I said that your experience of being at the beach is subjective. That is subjective to you as a subject. Of um, course, there's a fact that uh, a matter that you had an experience. Uh, if you didn't exist, though, which entails you didn't go to the beach, where does the experience, not the fact that you had the experience, exist in the world? Well, of course, the experience wouldn't exist if you didn't exist, right? Because he's right about experiences being. Um, the way we're using the term experience here is intrinsically subjective. So if you weren't a subject, right, I can't have your experience. So he's absolutely right about that. Um, but what's objective is the beach, right? There's an object, just like when I see a tree, there's the experience that I have, and you can't have my experience of seeing a tree. You can have a similar one, but there's also the tree, right? So there is something that exists in the world. And the beach would be there even if uh, no human beings were there. So could you then, you know, translate this into the topic of morality that we're having of, of that it, you could have an objective moral uh, fact that, you know, uh, murder is wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. And if I didn't exist and I would not never experience murder and I wouldn't necessarily have to follow that, you know, thing, but it still uh, is objective. Is, is there a relationship yeah, there? Yeah. It, it depends why you don't exist because maybe you did experience murder and that's why you don't exist. <laughs> you know, we have to, we have to consider every possibility here, yeah. but yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, if, if I don't believe there's a tree in my front yard, that doesn't change the fact about there being a train in my front yard. And if someone disagrees with the claim that that, you know, everything else being equal, murder is wrong. Um, that doesn't change the fact that murder is wrong. Right. Yeah. So so there's a there is a subjective element of experience. And 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 Chris is absolutely right that that um, if the person doesn't exist, then the person can't have the experience, you know, and and so I hope I didn't completely misrepresent no yeah he said uh, it seems like we agree with him in the sense that yeah there are no uh he was calling into contention that there could be uh, experiences without subjects and yeah you need a subject in order to have an experience no, yeah. that's right. Awesome. Uh, so, what, you know, one thing, that we, again, I, I talk about and I get in, you know, uh, into these conversations and go, oh, yeah, what about this? Uh, is naturalistic explanations uh, for morality. Right. So so one thing that came up in my conversation with Tom Jump is that, uh, uh, and I know yours as well, is this idea of Platonism. Uh, that mm -hmm. Platonism is a natural explanation for objective morality uh, yeah. that he says and claims is a better explanation than God. So maybe if you could just kind of summarize Platonism for those who don't know what it yeah. is. And then uh, why you think that's not uh, a better explanation? Okay, I, I don't uh, remember exactly what Tom meant by Platonism. Yeah. So my explanation might not fit his. Yeah, perfect. But Plato had the view that there were these real, um, what he called forms that existed outside space and time that never changed, and that um, particular things, the kinds of things we experience, participate in. So a just action is just because it's related to the form justice. And uh, something is good because it participates in the form 
um, goodness. So that's the basic Plato's theory of forms. So why can't moral truths like the form of the good be the ground for goodness? Um, the first thing I want to say is it, it depending on what you mean by naturalism, it's not a naturalistic theory, right? Because um, I, I wrote a paper um, on um, fine tuning and naturalism, and I went to a dozen philosophical reference books, and um, they all define naturalism as being commensurate with the methods of science. And of course, if there is a form of the good, it's outside of space and time. It's not an empirical object. Um, it's not the kind of thing that the methods of science can tell us anything about. So there's a so so I'm not trying to conclude that it, that there is no version of naturalism that could make room for um, platonic forms, but um, most straightforward naturalistic accounts can't. So it's not straightforwardly a naturalistic alternative. Okay. Now, there's no supernatural agent in Platonism, um, and, and that makes it different from theism. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. I don't think Platonism, um, you have to do a pretty significant revision to your naturalism um, to be a Platonist. Yeah. And, and yeah. there are philosophers who've done this. Quine is a is a um, very famous and important example. Um, trying to be a, a, a naturalist, but he had to allow things like numbers and properties and propositions and this kind of stuff. So, um, so what does it really mean then to say that there is this form called justice? Like that there's well, this physical substance somewhere in the universe or outside of the universe? It's outside the universe. It's, um, it's, it's very difficult to make plausible. And of course, the Plato scholars get to fight about um, the nuances in Plato himself, it's probably easiest to see when we talk about mathematical terms. And, and there is some evidence that Plato is deeply influenced by the Pythagoreans who, who are famous for the theorem that all high school students hate. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, who thought that number was the foundation of everything. Right. Um, and so, when, so when you think about doing geometry in high school, and you draw a triangle on the board and you, you know, you, you show the right angle and you say that the interior angles add up to 180 degrees and all this stuff. You're not talking about the picture on the board, right? You're talking about, you have to fill in the blank. What are you talking about? Right. Is there a, is, is there a real thing, triangularity, or are we talking about a subjective concept now, for Plato, there was a real thing. Tri there was triangle. And every physical triangularly shaped thing is triangularly shaped because it related to this. Right. So it's a it's a deep question in philosophy of math. What grounds mathematical truths? And Platonism is one answer. I'm not arguing it's the true answer, but it's helpful to see why you might think that numbers are real and objective. The, the, and, it, and the relation between them grounds the truth of the claim that one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. So Platonism is an answer. There are all kinds of other answers in philosophy of math. But this is this helps illustrate uh, what or helps make plausible certain facets of Platonism. Okay. You can see how numbers have to be real. And and um, um, 
Plato um, brought this in into ethical theory, right? In part because Socrates was most. This is my theory. <laughs> Socrates was most interested in virtues, right? And and the early dialogues of Plato are probably more accurate to the historic Socrates, where the euthyphro is what is holiness or piety. The Protagoras can virtue be taught, and um, Plato began to answer these ethical questions with these resources from mathematics in terms of the Pythagoreans and the reality of numbers. And, and this might have um, influenced his theory of forms. Now, it's, it's, a, it's an utter mystery to me and to some of the Plato scholars that I've overheard <laughs> um, how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. What is the participation relation, right? Um, it, it makes sense that a triangle that you draw on a board is a triangle because it, it, it has the properties of triangularity, um, but it's much harder to see what the form justice would be, what content would be in that. Okay, so yeah. Platonism is fascinating stuff, and um, it's certainly a, a, a long-running theory. Um, Augustine thought that Plato's theory of forms were really ideas in God's mind, and and um, and God created according to these ideas. Um, so there, so there is, there has been historically a synthesis between a Christian theistic view, well, not just Christian, because Islamic scholars and Jewish scholars did the same thing, with um, certain features of Platonism. Um, so. It could just be a fact that goodness exists. Okay, now we're getting back to like normal human beings. It could just be a fact that goodness exists and that things that match goodness are good. And, and that's a plausible theory. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the sense that I'm not sure it's plausible that it's true, but if goodness exists, then as a theory, this might work out. Okay. That's what I mean. So that's the, Oh, sorry. Go for it. I was going to say a couple of things that are difficult is this. One is even if goodness exists, it's not clear where we get moral obligation from. Not just that this thing is good, but I'm obligated to do it. And that seems to be my question is that if goodness exists, then you also have badness existing in some form. Or if justice exists in a form, then you have injustice that exists in some form. And so why should I follow the justice and the goodness versus the badness and the injustice forms? Well, I, I, I think if all you have is a kind of a raw Platonism, you're, you're going to have to have a theory like Plato had, that there's a hierarchy of being, right? And that evil is not equal and opposite to goodness, but it's a corruption, right? And we see this in, um, um, well, it's foreshadowed in the Republic with the divided line, um, but it gets really picked up in the Neoplatonists, um, Plotinus and people like this, that, that, Evil is not a substance, it's, it's a distortion or it's a corruption, um, and it's not equal and opposite. So if you have that kind of view, then you can, then you can say something like, well, as a human being, to, to I'm going to make up words here, 
to enter into my existence and my reality fully is to give some preference for the good because that is full being. Whereas there's a corruption to enter into evil or something, something like that. I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, mm-hmm. but there's, so you can see why it would be good to align with the good. Okay. I mean, using the word good in two different senses, right? It, it is fitting for a human person to align with the good, but that still doesn't give, um, obligation. Yeah. Now, my other question is, why think this is a better theory than theism? The only reason someone like Jump has is he thinks theism is false. But that's not how you compare theories, right? Mm-hmm. You say, if this theory is true, what resources does it give? And if this theory is true, what resources does it give? So if theism, Christian theism or Islamic theism, you know, a, a, a kind of a richer theological theism, not just a, a the bare theism of uh, a, a theoretical theist. Um, if one of these is true, then it really does have a better explanation for morality and its place in human beings because we're created with a purpose, and some of these purposes are moral. Hmm. So I just deny that that there's any sense that these are better theories than theism. I, I think the way he's evaluating is. Um, um, He's not, he's not evaluating the relative um, explanatory power of the theories. Yeah. He yeah. Is, thinks anything that might be true that's not theistic is better than the theistic story. But that's not how you compare theories. Yeah. So I've heard of other natural explanations for morality uh, being objective, like it's ingrained into us by evolution, or kind of yeah. what you said, just this idea of human flourishing. Are those popular defended theories that you see uh, more at an academic level? Um, or what are some of the proposed naturalistic or atheistic secular theories for morality that people say are better than Christian theism? Well, you know, and, and to be honest, moral philosophy is not my area. I think the evolution story gets a lot of traction. Um, and um, at least popularly and at least in, um, I'm not sure how much traction in academic philosophy it gets mm-hmm. for moral um, moral philosophers, right? Um, and when I say I'm not sure, I mean that very literally. I just don't know, right? Um, but you find that in a, a lot of the sociology and, and soft sciences, as well as some of the hard sciences, right? Um, the, the, the problem with that theory, I think, is very simple. Um, and my objection has nothing to do with objecting to the theory of evolution. It's that if, evo- if, if the only thing evolution can explain is how we got to be certain kinds of creatures, Suppose there's no God and it's a completely undirected evolution. Then it explains how we got to be certain kinds of things, you know, opposable thumbs, two eyes, um, pimples. I'm not sure what the story is for pimples. Um, and if, if undirected evolution is true, then it provides good explanations for these things. So now if we apply it to morality, it explains why we became, why we developed into the kinds of beings that have moral sensibilities. 
But that says nothing about the object, right? The morality itself. You need a philosophical argument that there is no moral truth objectively before the evolutionary story can actually be an explanation. Yeah. And I think this is often overlooked because you can do the same thing with mathematics, right? If you have an evolutionary story of mathematics, then you think, well, then there's no mathematical truths because it can be explained by evolution. Hmm. And the same thing with history and the same thing with whatever, the theory of evolution itself. Yeah. Would you say that one of the objections to a more of a scientific um, uh, uh, explanation of morality is that science can only explain uh why something happens the way it does, not rather not what you ought to do, right? So, uh, yeah. you know, it can explain what happens if you take, if you drink poison, but it doesn't say whether you ought to poison someone or not, or what happens if you stick a knife in someone, not whether you ought to stick a knife in someone or not. Right. Yeah, I would th- say yes, but I'm, I, I want to change your wording because science can tell us why things happen only in terms of causal explanations. Right. But the but the why question is ambiguous. Right. And because there are reasons. Yeah. Right. So. So, you know, a good scientific theory helps explain what happens in certain situations and and what happens is causal for the most part. Right. And and we've identified some non causal phenomena in the world, you know, in on the quantum level, apparently. Um. Um, I say apparently because I don't know anything about it. Uh, <laughs> but um, if you so so suppose you suppose you ask the question, why did the window break? And this gets into the causation stuff. You might say, well, because it was hit by a rock. Why was it hit by a rock? Because the rock was traveling in the right direction. Why was that so? Because it left the twelve-year-old boy's hand with the right velocity. Well, why did the boy throw the rock? All of a sudden, you're you're not asking for a causal story. You're asking for a reason, right? He was trying to hit the squirrel in the tree, and he missed. Um, and and the scientific explanations can't doesn't trade in reasons as an explanation. It only trades in in causal stories. Yeah. I think John uh, Lennox gives a good example of that where he asks the question, you know, why is the water uh, boiling on the stove? And you can give the scientific answer of that there's a certain amount of heat and the molecules or whatever. Uh, you can also answer the question by saying, I want a cup of tea. Uh, exactly. You know, I'm making soup. Those are both legitimate answers. One scientific, one that is not a scientific answer, but is also legitimate uh, as well. Um, okay. So then, as, you know, as we kind of wrap up uh, in, in some of this discussion, um, looking first at um, kind of some more, I guess, maybe some broader uh, application of uh, the arguments for God's existence and morality. Uh, the question came in, let me see if I can pull it up here. Uh, first of all is, uh, again, big problem of evil. So we'll maybe just keep it short because I have a lot of videos on this. But, you know, if we are going to say that God is the moral, uh, the author of all moral goodness, and, and he is, you know, um, yeah, the grounding of our morality and objective goodness, you know, how can then a good God let children die of diseases uh, that they aren't necessarily accountable? So um, wh- how then do we explain uh, the suffering if we do say, well, God did it, but then we see God commanding things in the Old Testament? Do you have a kind of maybe a brief yeah. explanation for this? Well, those are two questions, um, two different questions, right? You know, if 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 a child's not accountable for a disease, then 
that's not part of God's reason for allowing the child to have the disease, right? That just follows. And, and I think that's right. Um, I, I think in the, it's, it's helpful with the problem of suffering to make a distinction between, um, kind of the generic theism and something like Christian theism, right? Um, because generic the, theism only gives us, um, fragmentary resources about the purposes of God in creation. Right. And, and, you know, generic theism is God is all powerful, holy, good, all knowing or something along those lines. He created the universe. And and all we have is that God's purposes are going to be good. But in, in when theism is and, and most people aren't generic theists, right, they're going to be Christian, Islamic, um, you know, and, and maybe some mixture. Um, there's a lot more resources about the purposes of God and, and both in terms of, uh, how God expresses his goodness and the fact that God, um, at least in the Christian story, God is always about bringing good out of evil. Right. And, and, and the question about children, um, suffering from diseases, of course, it's very hard. Um, but some of the resources of the Christian, um, story include that, that the child's story is not over, right? It, it's an especially tragic story if there's no life after death, right? If, if the child won't be still a living human 10,000 years from now. But on the Christian story, she will be, right? Her story is not over. And um, this doesn't tell us the reasons that God might have this particular child have a disease. Of course, we shouldn't expect to know God's particular reasons for particular people. I mean, we can't even figure out human beings' reasons for, you know, our, our, our friends' reasons for, for what they do. We shouldn't expect to know God's reasons. Um, but we do know that they're good and we know her story isn't over. And that, and, and that's helpful. Um, on the atheistic story, there's just no hope, right? Because some people get dealt a good hand, some people get dealt a bad hand, and but the game's going to be over soon, and nothing that happens in the game matters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's so important to point out is that the atheistic uh, explanation or that you know secular explanation doesn't get rid of the problem; it simply no. removes the solution to the problem. Right. Absolutely. Um, another question came in from Marissa on Instagram, uh, and she asked kind of this, uh, and this is kind of, I think, um, you know, in, in response to all the arguments for God's existence of, let's say the arguments uh, for God's existence get people to believe that God exists rather than right. believing in him. Uh, right. why, why is that maybe not enough? Uh, how, how maybe, um, uh, how, what do you do with someone who goes, okay, Yep, I'm convinced this right. argument points me to that God exists. Now, why actually believe in him and follow what he actually tells me to, to do? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good question. I One thing that's important about this question is it shows that these are two distinct steps, mm -hmm. right? And um, and the, the philosophical arguments get you to um, the degree to which they're persuasive. They don't have to be proofs, but if you're persuaded, they, they get you to the claim that God is real. But then then I would invite someone to think about that claim, 
So you were created by an all-knowing, all-powerful, holy good person. And for reasons that God has. And in the religious traditions, I mean, if you're going to stay a generic theist, you might not take this step. But in the religious traditions, we are told we can experience those purposes. And those purposes point towards our flourishing. Right. So there are deep prudential reasons to um, go beyond just believing that God exists. And that is believing in him and and trusting him. Um, and, and those prudential reasons aren't because if you don't, you're going to get swatted like a fly. But it's because this is what it means to be a human being. Right. We were made with these purposes and they're integral to our nature if the theistic story is true. And um, we only find our flourishing or we find it most fully. I'm not saying people outside don't have any flourishing. We find it most fully in this relationship. Um, so that, that would be my kind of first step towards that. Yeah, that's good. Um, so kind of quick response to what we were discussing here just a moment ago. Uh, atheist humanist, or sorry, the outsider humanist and, and critical Chris are commenting in the live chat uh, when we said that atheism um, doesn't provide, you know, an afterlife or at least a, a solution to the problem of evil. Um, they're saying, no, atheism uh, doesn't entail there isn't an afterlife. There are atheists who believe in a reincarnation. Atheism doesn't necessarily remove the solution. Uh, and so uh, what about atheists who believe that there is an afterlife? Well, well, that's that's perfectly fair enough, right? And um, um, most atheistic thinkers haven't been in that category, right? Um, at least the most dominant ones. Maybe I should say that. Um, I'm thinking of like Bertrand Russell and and um, people who are now called the new atheists, although there's not much new about it. Um, um, sure. So so you you could have a belief in reincarnation that would give some answer to this question. Um, but then we have to evaluate both the epistemic grounding for your belief in reincarnation. It, you know, so is it, are your reasons for believing that better than the reasons for believing in, in theism that in Christian theism? Um, and even if it's then when we compare the theories, we can say, even if reincarnation is true, it does it give as full an explanation. And especially if we're thinking about the question, where does hope lie? Re reincarnation allows for an afterlife, but it doesn't really allow for hope. Now you can add to reincarnation something like nirvana in, in Buddhism, where you're striving for the ceasing of existence or at least individuality. Um, but that's another Thing that you have to evaluate how how plausible is that so yes i think they're absolutely right because there are all kinds of different combinations you can have yeah. when we mostly yeah. think about the way atheism is discussed it, it in general includes that there's no afterlife yeah and that's what's hard to do in a conversation like this is to to address every little nuance that someone might hold because you know generally speaking a, an atheist or a a natural not not all atheists are physicalists or naturalists but most exactly. probably would be and therefore there's no soul so oh, if there is a so reincarnation what is being reincarnated and you know those kind of questions come up 
if you can ask the, your friends who are commenting, say, well, do you believe in reincarnation? And if they say no, then say, well, that's not an issue then. Yeah. Right? We're comparing our, our view. Yeah, we're yeah. trying to understand kind of the better thing. All right, awesome. Well, we uh, are just 20 seconds away from hitting one hour, which is what we agreed upon. I have one like, kind of last final question from uh, the outsider humanist, if that's all right. Um, again, trying to kind of bring all this together. Uh, he commented a little while ago, I said, I think the God and Platonism are answers to a question that is better left a question. Why is there order rather than chaos? something rather than nothing. And he says, I'm skeptical that we can answer that question without running into contradictions. So I think this kind of does kind of tie everything together when it yes. comes to the different arguments of God's existence. How how do we give answers to order rather than chaos, something rather than nothing, the existence of objective moral values? Well, well, there are like three or four things in this question. First, um, I would push back on why is it better left to question? Why? Let's take the question, why is there something rather than nothing? As, right, because the order and chaos is related, but let's, so so we have a couple of theories. One is there's no explanation, and the other is there's a perfectly good explanation. We should prefer the perfectly good explanation, right? Unless it can be shown that there's some kind of contradiction or other strong reasons not to hold it. Now, the outsider humanist claims that, that if we try to answer these, we're gonna hit a contradiction. Of course, we've got to take that on a case-by-case -case basis. We've got to find an accusation of contradiction and and see what we can do about it, right? Just like um, any philosophical exploration. But the idea that that it's it's better to have no explanation than to accept the explanation of God seems to me to be um, kind of a retreat from sound reasoning, unless you've got other case, uh, a case to think that the God explanation fails, either it's incoherent or, um, or something like that. So I don't know if, if he has in mind particular contradictions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to have time to go through those. Yeah, that's the difficult thing here. We're running out of time is I wish we could go through. So maybe, yeah. you know, outsider humanists, you can comment what you think the contradictions no. are. And, um, and maybe in a future video, I can uh, kind of work through those. Um, yeah. But again, I think that these, these kind of ties up what he said is, uh, I think the main arguments for God's existence of that we experience these things that are objective, you know, moral values or duties and, and God is a, a the better explanation of that. Right. We see in our world that there is order rather than chaos and an orderer makes sense of that with a fine tuning argument. And we know that there's something rather than nothing and you either have nothing creating everything out of nothing, or you have someone creating everything out of nothing. And a God explanation seems to make sense of that one well as, as, as well. So there's kind of the three main arguments for God's existence. Yeah. And I, and I think what, what we want to leave your viewers with, and I'm sure you do this regularly, is, is we're not talking about proofs that have no room for resistance. We're, we're talking about trying to assess what's the better uh, reason. And this is the way every academic discipline is done. I mean, you get deductive proofs mostly in mathematics and in logic. Yeah. And everything else is evidential. We assess the evidence and the counter evidence and we and we try to see what's most reasonable and philosophy is especially that way. Um and um so we don't have to make a deductive case and exaggerate the strength of our case in order to have a good reason yeah. to to think that 
God is real. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I appreciate this conversation and Outsider Humanist just commented too okay. and said, this has been very interesting. Thank you guys for doing this. And so again, yeah. I, I really appreciate that. I, this is what I want this channel to be is, is people thinking deeply about these issues, getting pushback from people who do not believe. So it's not just Christians talking about Christian right. things. Right. And Thanks for the pushback. At, all the, all all your viewers. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So again, I just want to encourage you to comment below uh, if there's uh, contradictions that you see in kind of that answering that question and maybe doing a, a video here in the future. Uh, Greg, I, I've listed your books uh, below and, and uh, more okay. about you. Um, is there kind of anything else you want to say to those listening and watching here as, as we wrap up our time together about kind of the work you're doing and where they can kind of support your work? Oh, uh, gee, I don't know. <laughs> if I was a good person, I'd have a website, but I don't. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, you know, just keep thinking about these things. And, and I, uh, um, I appreciate the conversation. Greg, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time this morning to do it. No problem, Ryan. Thanks. All right. For those of you watching and listening, as always, just stay tuned. Again, uh, later this week on Thursday, I'm going to be having a conversation with Megan Alman from the Life Training Institute on the topic of pro-choice versus uh, pro-life uh, and having a discussion on that issue as well. Again, you can subscribe, uh, follow, share this with a friend or family member, help them think deeply as well. If you want to support the channel, you can click on the Patreon link below and you can do that as well, as well as check out the videos that are up here in the corners of other interviews and short videos that I've done. Again, continue to think deeply, think deeply about God. Thank you guys so much for watching. My name is Ryan Polly. Again, have a wonderful rest of your week. I just won't hesitate to follow your love will guide my